Welcome to Musically Challenged, your weekly helping of random music conversations based on whatever topic the guys choose. Their goal is to entertain and inform you on a variety of themes. This podcast is an expression of their lifelong love and commitment to music. Simply stated, music is life. This show may include adult themes and language. Once again, welcome to Musically Challenged. Here are your hosts, Chad and Lou. So as Jean-Luc Picard would say, make it so. All right. Welcome to episode 59. 59, dude. 59. That means the next one is 60. Exactly. And 10 episodes to the magic episode. That would be correct, <laughs> which we've already got some songs picked out for. I'm sure we do. All right. So anyways, episode 59 of Musical Challenge, your weekly helping a music conversation based on pretty much whatever topic we want. I'm your host, Lou Schwalbach, and along with me, as always, is Chad Knight. Make it so. All right. So this week, we're going to go back to the mailbag and let a guest listener be part of the show. Like, Yay! Like before, we're going to let an outside... An outside? An outside? Are you Canadian, Canadian for, us for a moment? Yeah. Let an outside playlist be given to us by a listener and give it our well-educated and non-biased opinions. <laughs> yeah, good or bad. It's my turn to laugh exactly. about that. Exactly. Now, as a reminder, we have chosen not to accept any stipulations such as, don't hate on this band because I like them, or don't be mean... I don't have kids. I'm just assuming that's what they would do. Yeah, pretty much. So we won't be pulling punches regardless of whoever the guest chooser is, so there would be no favoritism displayed, just our pure, unadulterated opinions. I'm actually curious to see if you're going to stick to that. All right. Potential submitters, do not say you haven't been warned. So this week we're starting a Nicole Tufer. Yeah. Guest episodes. Let me take a second to explain. In case you weren't aware, Chad and I are both hitched. No smartass. Regarding what you've heard, it's not to each other. <laughs> Although I'm sure our wives would disagree. Sometimes, yeah. It just so happens that both of us are espoused. How's that yeah, that's good? a big that's word. That's a good did word, you, right? Did you have to go to the fourth to get that? No, actually, I knew that one. Two lovely women, and both of them are named Nicole. What are the odds, right? Uh, probably not very good. So this week's playlist was brought to us by my Nicole, Nicole Schwalbach. This week, she gave us a list of songs that she enjoys listening to. There's really no rhyme or reason, just songs that she likes. You know what? It's good enough for us. So, like always, our guest listener begs us to ponder the questions. Will we discover a new artist that we'll have to start listening to, or it's just going to be some junk we could live without? Will we feel our lives enriched and bettered for listening to these, or are we going to feel cheated and wish we had that time back? Guess you'll have to keep listening and find out, right? So, like, without some fur- without any further ado, let's get it started. Yay! <laughs> All right. I'm uh, excited. I'm excited to see you. Now... I can honestly say that when my daughters gave us their list, I was completely unbiased about that. I can, I hope that I can be the same about my wife's list next to time. Well, to be fair, it's not like she listens to it, so you could rip her a new one and she wouldn't know. My wife listens. Really? Oh, yeah. She's in October right now, but she listens. Uh, so she's catching up. Yes. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, should I just... No, we got to do some stuff. We do. So, first and foremost, we need to get liquored up. I think we do. All right. So this week we are doing something. It's called Frambois Lambic. It's a Belgian raspberry beer. It's a malt beverage with natural flavors and natural sweetener. It's a product of Vliesenbeek, Belgium. 12 ounces. And liquor content is yes. Because it really doesn't say anywhere on here. Like It doesn't have a percentage or anything? No. It, not that I can see here. Interesting. It's imported. So maybe they just don't give a shit. I don't know. So yeah. it's It's got liquor in it because it's imported and it's raspberry flavored 
And the writing on the side says, Lindemann's Frambois is a lambic made from local barley, unmalted wheat, raspberry juice, aged hops, and wild airborne yeast. The brewers add no yeast. Rich raspberry balances wild yeast complexity. True lambics are brewed only in Belgium's Seine River Valley, neighboring Brussels. Sure. Okay, I gotta ask though, on the on the list of ingredients, does it have tomato? No, it does not. However, I can smell that as well. It smells like tomato. I I hope it doesn't taste like tomato. Well, Even though I don't know, maybe tomato beer would be good. I don't know. People drink that clamato bullshit. Yeah, I suppose. All right, well, let's give it a run. There we go. It smells more tomatoey than it tastes, but I think that's probably the raspberry that you're smelling. Yeah, yeah, but for some reason my brain is calling it tomato. I this, especially being so it's cold, I bet you on a summer day, this shit would really go down good. really, really easy. I actually really like it. Mm-hmm. I'm a little con- my my palate is a little confused because I smell tomato, I taste raspberry, but then on the back end I taste tomato. A little bit. It's probably that airborne yeast or some bullshit. I Maybe don't know. I, I don't know. All right, so what shall you, what are you thinking? Shall, shall we rate this? Yep. I'm gonna go with a. Thumbs up, actually. I'm going up on this one, too. I, I really enjoyed this. I, I'm pretty sure they make other flavors, too. Oh, okay. Um, but raspberry usually has a pretty good solid bitter flavor to it, and I think that's why it works. Yeah, I think so. And like I said, I, the only thing that gives me pause is I can smell tomatoes. And, and I know it, it doesn't taste like that, but anyway. It's it's like some foods where it's like, you know what, the, it's the consistency that screws it up even though it tastes amazing. Right. So like um, tapioca, for example. Oh, I'm sorry. I love pudding. I do too. Pudding is amazing. It's but, one of my favorite things. But those little those little weird balls of jelly that are in there, I'm like, nope. You mean it, the little balls of tapioca? Yeah. I mean, it's whatever it is. I don't know. The pellets. The yeah, they're, they're a tapioca. They're some sort of a starch. Or like rice pudding is another one. I love rice pudding. I, I can't get past. I mean, it tastes great. I've had bread pudding. I've had rice pudding. It's great. I just can't get past the consistency. I'm just like, ah, no. See, and, but to me, rice pudding isn't complete. Unless it has raisins in it. Oh, of course. Raisins make almost everything better. I agree. You're one of the few people I've come across. Most people, I'm like, oh, man, I love carrot cake. But only if it has raisins in it. And they're like, the hell's wrong with you? I don't know if I've actually had carrot cake with raisins. Oh, that's the only way to do it. I've had plenty of carrot cake, trust me, in my life. Um, yeah, in fact, you look kind of like a it's, carrot. It's uh, Thank you. Um, it's got to have cream cheese frosting on it, though. Oh, if it doesn't have cream cheese frosting, it's kind of pointless. Then you just take the frosting off and eat the cake. Because honestly, or you can eat the cake and I'll eat the frosting. That's that's fine. My wife will eat my frosting too. But it's like, ew, don't care. You sick, sick bastard. It's not at all what I meant. But I'm now not. You're I'm thinking not. About it. I'm not a. <laughs> I'm not a big person for frosting to begin with, but cream cheese frosting and a good buttercream. See, I don't like buttercream. See, a good buttercream, or you know, if you get cakes like at the grocery stores, they always do like the sugar fat frosting. Or they can do whipped cream frosting. Whipped cream frosting. That stuff is the shit. My birthday every year, my wife's like, what kind of cake you want? I'm like, I want this kind of cake, and I want whipped cream frosting. And she's like, but what about buttercream? And I'm like, whipped cream frosting. <laughs> exactly. All right, so we're going to keep moving on. There's one other thing we're going to, well, not one thing, but one main thing we're going to do, and that's our trivia, because that's what we do. So we've got a question. Oh, and speaking of this, we talked about this last week. When we are doing our guest li- our list for each other for our birthdays, yep, um, you're gonna actually ask me a question. So that's how we're gonna switch that one up. So for my birthday, you'll be li- you'll be doing my list. You'll be doing the trivia question. So that's up to you. You got a couple weeks to plan. Hey, that's actually pretty good because if I'm doing the trivia question, that means I can get it right. 
well, I, yeah, you'll get it right because you researched it. Right. But you always ask me the trivia question. I mean, I have to ask you and I don't get to answer it? Well, if you want to. I mean, if you want to answer it just to feel good about yourself, that's cool. But <laughs> anyways, all right. So, real short question, and that's what musical duo composed the theme song for the 2010 Fox television show Bones? So basically, who composed the theme song? Yeah, I, were they a duo before this? I mean, okay, I have a few ideas. But... So basically, to shorten up, who composed the show, who show, who composed the theme song for Bones? Okay. And I picked this one because this is actually, that is one of her favorite shows. Or was one of her favorite shows. Fair enough. All right. So, and then last thing we're going to do before we get moving on this one is we're going to talk about the songs. And as you remember, we have our own rating system. So we're just going to do a quick reminder, and that's we use a 1 to 10 scale before, but now it's like, you know, there are some things that probably have a chance to be so terrible that we have to add a zero. Zero is going to be absolute shit. Kill it with fire, your ears may bleed. Hopefully you get it with fire before the ears bleed, because then you're screwed for the rest of the day. Yeah, once your ears start bleeding, you might as well just turn around and go back to bed. And just, you know, throw on some... You know, throw, a, throw a couple tampons in your ears and go to bed. Okay, um, that'll work. Um, one through three is a hard pass. If we can help it, we're not going to do it again. Four to six is okay. It's not great, not terrible. We're not really going to change the station, but we're really not going to look it out. Look for it, seek it out. Seven to nine is pretty good. Pretty darn good. To, yeah. To great. Might have to look for more about from this artist in the future. Number 10 is the Unicorn. It is amazeballs. It's awesome. We can't live without it. And we're probably not going to have anything that goes under that as of yet. You didn't find one in this episode? No. I didn't either. So, now that we've got this, I think you're going to be starting this one, are you not? I will. I All will. Right. So, we are going to do Begin by Madcon. So, Madcon is a Norwegian musical duo formed in 1992 by Josef... Uh, Wolda Mariam and Tashane Bakwa. I probably killed those names. It's the last time I'm going to use them, so let's move on. To date, they have released six albums. Madcon released their first single, God Forgive Me, in 2000. But their first commercial breakthrough came with the hit single, Barcelona, in 2002, with longtime collaborators Paperboys. Okay. It, yeah, I know. In 2004, Madcon released their first official album, It's All a Madcon, for which they won a Norwegian Grammy and several other awards. So is a Norwegian Grammy any less respectful or respected than uh, uh, an American Grammy? Maybe they just talk in their accents be like, oh, yeah, you won a Grammy or... <laughs> Are they the Swedish chef? Something like that. In 2005, Madcon were TV personalities on the Nordic music channel The Voice. Um, while working on their music in the studio. The show, The Voice of Madcon, a behind-the-scenes of the duo, was a great success for both Madcon and the network. Let's do a little begging. In 2007, the same year as the Poluski remix, the Norwegian hip-hop group Madcon recorded and released a new version of the song with tweaked lyrics and added rap verses. This is, of course, Began. The version became very popular in Norway, reaching number one on the charts. Madcon's version of the song is a total re-recording. All instruments were performed by the production team Three Elements and all vocals by Madcon. The single went six times platinum, and it was the highest-selling song in Norway in 2007, and received the 
Hit of the Year, uh, Speller Mannpreisen Award. The song also became popular throughout Europe. The song appeared in the live finale of Season 3 of America's Best Dance Crew, in which finalists Beat Freaks and the Quest Crew performed together. It was also used in the episode Battle Scars of Season 6 of CSI New York and in the Meet the Top 20 episode of So You Think You Can Dance. The song was also used in the dance movies Step Up 3D and Street Dance 3D. In addition to the movie Just Go With It and the trailer for the 2011 raunchy comedy Bad Teacher. The music video features Madcon in a mix of blaxploitation scenes and dozing off while playing Halo 3 and was directed by Christian Holmglad. The song Begging Itself is a very smooth flow. I understand it was a remake of the four-season song Begging, but I'm not familiar with the original, and it, if it's anything like this one, I'd probably like, like it a lot. I say that because I like this one a lot. I gave it 7 of 10. Oh, very nice. Now, I'll be honest, I did not know who did this song or what it was called until doing this list. Okay. I had heard it before. It has a really catchy hook. It sounds retro, which makes sense because it's a cover. And it's enjoyable. I kind of would like to hear more from these guys. Yeah, I would do. So I actually also gave it a seven. Okay. So we're off on a good start so far. All right. So what do you got? All right. We're going to go with a little Kiss to Build a Dream on by Louis Armstrong. So Louis Daniel or Louis Daniel Armstrong was born in 1901 in New Orleans, Louisiana. So when you split these up, did you take this because his name's Louis? No. Okay. I actually did not. Um, I don't know why I picked what I did. So, okay. Whatever. So, he was first exposed to music while attending Fisk School for Boys. While selling coal as a child, he came across spasm bands, uh, bands that played a variety of Dixieland, jazz, jug band, and skiffle music. Due to his family being rough, he lived with his with a family of Lithuanian Jews by the name of Karnofsky, who treated him just like family. They even advanced him $2 towards the purchase of a cornet. He dropped out of school at age 11 and started to sing for money on the streets and getting into trouble. After some legal issues, he started off. He started official trumpet instruction with Peter Davis. He started his musical career playing on or around riverboats in New Orleans. That experience helped him read sheet music and get his foot in the door for extended trumpet solos, being one of the first jazz players to do this. Tons of people fled north, landing in Chicago, and Armstrong did the same, hooking up with his mentor Joe King Oliver. After time, he moved to New York to play with the Fletcher Henderson Orchestra, the top African-American band at the time, and he swapped to the trumpet to blend better with the rest of the musicians. He moved back to Chicago in 1925, mainly due to pressure from his wife, who wanted to, finger quote, pump up his career and income. He went in and out of jazz bands and again moved back to New York for a very short time before heading out to California for new opportunities. His agent kept his tour schedule busy, and Armstrong was broke due to his horrible money management skills. In 1943, he stopped touring and settled in Queens, New York, and returned to a small group jazz sound with Louis Armstrong and his All-Stars, becoming the first jazz musician to grace the cover of Time magazine in 1949. He continued to locally tour with his DECA contract ended. He did freelance work and went back to touring, in which he did until his heart attack in 1959. He recuperated, yet that was the beginning of the end. He kept touring well into his upper 60s, and when he started to have serious heart and kidney issues, he took a year off and got medically cleared in the summer of 1970 to head out on the road again. He started another world tour, but had to cut it short due to another heart attack. Against doctor advice, he played a two-week engagement in 1971, and at the end of it, he was in the hospital for another heart attack. So that's three? At very least. 
Not wanting to give it a break, he started practicing the horn again and died of another heart attack in his sleep about a month before his 70th birthday. His honorary pallbearers include Dizzy Gillespie, Bing Crosby, Ella Fitzgerald, Frank Sinatra, Ed Sullivan, and Johnny Carson, to name a few. That's that. That's not really a power list, though. No, no, not too much of a rogues list for who's who at the time, was it? Right. And Louis Armstrong, a.k.a. Satchmo or Pops, released 28 albums, most of them being EPs or LPs. He posthumously, I think that's how you say that. Posthumously, yep. Uh, won a Grammy Award, including the Lifetime Achievement Award in 1972, and is one of the grandfathers of jazz. Let's go ahead and take a brief listen to A Kiss to Build a Dream On. Give me a kiss before you leave me, and my imagination will feed my hungry heart. Mm, leave me one thing before we part, A Kiss to Build a Dream On. The song itself was written by Bert Kalmar. Harry Ruby, and Oscar Hammerstein II, which is half of the duo of Robert Rogers and Hammerstein, who we all know who they've done, and they've done a lot. Yeah, yeah. Especially, I suppose, with your uh, your theater history, you probably have heard a lot. Oh, yeah. And it was recorded by Louis Armstrong in 1951. I have never heard of this song, but to be fair, I don't often listen to the guy's stuff other than what we've all heard before, like What a Wonderful World and Wonderful, Wonderful World, and that's pretty much it. yeah. He's got amazing skills on the trumpet, and his voice is great for emotional songs such as What a Wonderful World, but I'm not really sure how he does with love songs. It really wasn't my style. I mean, I like his music, but this one just didn't do it for me. I gave it a, I gave it a six. Okay. All right, so Louis Armstrong is a voice that you cannot mistake for anybody else. Oh, yeah, he comes on, you know who it is right away. There, there's something hypnotic about it almost. I mean... Honestly, he sounds like he smoked way too many cigarettes, drank way too much whiskey, and probably, oh, we know he probably did, and ate a lot of beef. I mean, he just he's, you know, but his ability on the trumpet is unmatched. You know, this song is a classic love song. It's a great package. I really, it's some smooth jazz from the master. I gave it eight of ten. Oh wow. I really enjoyed it, but I really enjoy Louis Armstrong too, and I've listened to a lot of Satchmo stuff. So okay. It's just kind of the way it goes. but Okay, so what do you got next? So up next we got Boogie Shoes by KC and the Sunshine Band. So KC and the Sunshine Band are an American disco and funk band founded in 1973 in Hylia, Florida. Their best known songs include the hits That's the Way, Uh-huh, Uh-huh, I Like It. I'm sorry, but now I'm just thinking of Gold Member. <laughs> <laughs> and Shake, 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 Shake Your Booty, I'm Your Boogeyman. Keep It Coming, Love, Get Down Tonight, Boogie Shoes, Please Don't Go, and Give It Up. The band took its name from lead vocalist Harry Wayne Casey's last name, Casey, and the Sunshine Band from Casey's home state of Florida, the Sunshine State. So let's put on our boogie shoes. So Boogie Shoes is a song by the disco group KC and the Sunshine Band, released in 1975 on the album KC and the Sunshine Band. Again, these... <laughs> it's just, it bugs me. I don't know. I Have some originality. Come up with a name. Exactly. Hell, even if it's just like our first album. Yeah. The song became a hit after it appeared on the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack in 1977. It peaked at number 35 on the Billboard Hot 100 and number 29 on the Soul Chart in 1978. Structurally, it uses the 16-bar blues chord progression. 
As with several of Casey's disco songs, some of the lyrics are playfully suggestive. I want to do it till the sun comes up. I want to do it till I can't get enough. This song is part of, like I said, the film from Saturday Night Fever and is featured in numerous other films, including No Escape, 1994, Mallrats, 1995, Boogie Nights, 1997, Detroit Rock City, 1999, The Wedding Date, 2005, as well as the television series Sports Night, Desperate Housewives, both coincidentally with star Felicity Huffman dancing to it, and Flash Forward. The song has been sampled by the Bloodhound Gang in the song One Way, and more recently by Trick Daddy in his song Take It to the House. Alex Chilton famously covered Boogie Shoes on his 1979 album Like Flies on Sherbert. In 2012, the song was sung by Alex Newell, playing a transgender teen in the Glee episode Saturday Night Gleaver. Ah, I see what they did there. Yeah. The song itself is very much disco. Now, I'm not a huge disco fan, but some of it's okay. I do like this song. I like the horns, the drums. It's just good music. I gave it a 7. Now, Boogie Shoes, my first thought, I'm glad you mentioned it, was the dirt mall scene from Mallrats. Yep. Because it's just, that's the right came to mind. And this is one of those where I knew the song, but not the title. I'm okay. Like, I recognized the music. I'm like, and as soon as it started playing, I'm like, oh, shit, I know that. <laughs> it's I'm not a huge disco fan either, but Casey and the Sunshine Band has some really good infectious music. So... I think it's a good slow groovy tune, and I also gave it a seven. Okay. So a little suppose, scary here. What do you got next, man? Yeah. So next, I've got a little "Groove Is in the Heart" by D Light. Nice, nice, nice. <laughs> so D Light, because they have like three E's in there. Yeah. Was an American house slash club and dance group formed in 1988 in New York, comprised of Kieran Magenta Kirby, aka Lady Miss Kier, and Dimitri Bill a.k.a. Super DJ Dimitri. Super DJ! Yeah. They played local shows as a duo with Lady on vocals and Supa as the DJ. And in 1988, they officially became D-Light when they included third Tawa T, a.k.a. Jungle DJ Tawa Tawa. Or Tawa Tawa. Wow. Yeah. Legend has it that Toa came to the U.S. from Japan to study graphic design but found that being a musician was more fun. I can understand that. I get it. They, re- they released their first album, 1990's World Click, and it went to number 20 on the U.S. Billboard 200 and went gold by the RIAA. Interestingly enough, it peaked at number one on the U.K. R&B chart. This song? The album. Oh. R&B charts. Yeah, that's odd. I think U.K. is a little messed in the head. Well. But in any respect. It's they fun. eat spotted dick. You tell me. <laughs> Which is not what you think it is, actually, but at the same time... What, 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 God, what movie was that? It's, I think it was like Shanghai Nights or something with Owen Wilson and Jackie Chan. It was like, do you want some spotted dick? I'm going to punch you in the face. <laughs> um, so the, the first album spawned five singles, including Grooves in the Heart, which was their first number one hit in the U.S. and Australia. They continued to record and tour just before the release of their third album, DJ Tawatawa, bailed and was replaced by DJ Ani. The label didn't really back the band, yet they still toured and successfully released their third album. The group was on life support. The label gave them a hard time. They didn't want to promote it or really fund their videos at all. Between that and the end of the relationship, uh, the end of the relationship between Lady and Supa, D-Light wasn't able to continue. They officially broke up in 1995. Aww. Lady continued to do solo work, including DJing and working in the back-end stuff like producing and engineering. DJ, uh, Supa, DJ, Dimitri, and DJ Ani still DJ, and... Jungle DJ Tawatawa went on to release albums as a solo artist as well as being part of a Japanese supergroup called Meta 5. 
I'm sorry, I'm just thinking of anime now. Yeah. Meta five. <laughs> and my lips were doing like 14 different motions, and it just translated to meta five. Right, right. So due to their personal and creative differences, there's really little hope of a delight reunion. In their time, they released three studio albums together, one of which went gold in the U.S. and U.K. and platinum in Canada, and have spawned 12 singles. Now, I actually thought they were a one-hit wonder, as only one song you ever hear is Groove is in the Heart, but they actually hit number one with six of their singles. Holy shit! Yeah, six of their singles on the U.S. dance charts actually hit number one. I don't know about you, but holy crap! Let's go ahead and uh, let's get a little groovy in our hearts. the really sad part is ever since you said groove is in the heart it has been playing in my head oh this is definitely an earworm oh yeah yeah so maybe if we do the earworms number two although didn't make it no it wasn't no i don't think so but it could be so it's the lead single from their debut album called world click it's famous for having bootsy collins on guest vocals and q-tip from a tribe called quest rapping during it nothing brings more fame though than the use of a slide whistle for the entertaining and comic effect the song is funky. It's basically the 1990s rolled into music. I mean, there really is no other way to explain it. I enjoy this song. I'm still going to consider it a one-hit wonder until I hear the other ones and realize if they're good or not. I give this an eight. Okay. So this is one trippy groove. I mean, I know it was released in the 90s, but it could easily just as easily could have been released in 1968. It's a great dance song. I really enjoy it. Not a whole lot to say, but I just really kind of like it. I gave it a six. What do you got next? On the Radio by Regina Spector is up next. So Regina Spector is a Russian-born American singer, songwriter, and pianist. She was born in Moscow and began classical training on the piano at the age of six. When she was nine years old, her family immigrated from the Soviet Union to the United States, where she continued her classical training into her teenage years. She began to write original songs shortly thereafter. After self-releasing her first three records and gaining popularity in New York City's independent music scenes, particularly the anti-folk scene centered on the New York City's East Village, Spectre signed with Sire Records in 2004 and began achieving greater mainstream recognition. After giving her third album a major label re-release, Sire released her fourth album, Begin to Hope, which would go on to achieve a gold certification by the RIAA. Her following two albums, Far and What We Saw from The Cheap Seats, each debuted at number three on the Billboard 200. 2016's Remember Us to Life peaked at 23 on the Billboard 200. Why don't we see what's on the radio? This is how it works. You're young until you're not. You love until you don't. You try until you can't. You laugh until you cry. You cry. On the radio is the first single from Regina Spector's fourth album, Begin to Hope. The chorus contains references to the song November Rain by Guns N' Roses. As of 2009, the single has sold 116,000 copies in the United States. The television show Grey's Anatomy used the song on the radio in the episode Damage Control. On the radio was featured in the 2011 film Beastly. It was also used in the soundtrack for the French movie Bouquet Final, 2008, directed by Michael Delgado. It can also be heard in the soundtrack for the French movie The Day I Saw Your Heart, 
directed by Romain Levy, Cecile Selma, and Jennifer DeVoldre. How can three people direct a movie? I don't know, tag team in it? Amanda Palmer has performed this song often live from her and Spectre's similar piano-driven styles. So On the Radio is a fun little song. It's not my style of song, but I can definitely understand why it could be likable. If you're into piano-driven music, it is totally a well-written and sung song. I gave it 6 of 10. All right, so Regina Spector, most of her music unfortunately really suffers from a bit of a hootie syndrome, where it really sounds very similar, if not a lot alike. Which is kind of the same as really. Similar. Well, this is the only the this is the only song I've ever heard, so I'm gonna take your word on that. I'm. I bet you I could play another one for you that you would recognize. Okay. But in any respect, to me it all sounds the same. The music itself isn't bad. It's her little kid voice that I don't care for. It just it. I may like one or two of her other ones. This just isn't one of them. It's okay. I'm giving it a four. Okay, that's fair enough. All right, so we're gonna take this one up now. This one. Honestly, I tried to pare down the history on this one, but it still came out to almost a full page of stuff to talk about. Okay. So, let's get started with Cecilia by Simon and Garfunkel. Okay. Singer-songwriter Paul Simon and singer Art Garfunkel formed this folk duo in 1956. They met in elementary school in Queens and worked on harmonizing and started writing their own material before, in 1957, at age 15, they had a contract with Sid Prosson's big record label as Tom and Jerry... Okay. Um, yeah. They released some material, and after graduating high school, Simon went solo. Or he released a solo album, which Art felt betrayed by, and they broke up, but still worked solo. They hooked back up and as the folk duo Simon and Garfunkel and released their debut album Wednesday morning, 3 a.m. in 1964, where it peaked at number 30 on the U.S. charts and has since gone platinum. Initially, the sales were crappy, so Simon moved to England. I don't want to stay here anymore because you're not buying my album. I'm leaving, basically is what he did. Okay, you big whiny bitch. Pretty much. He moved to England for a year, but with the sound of silence breaking out, he came back to the States. The label demanded a follow-up to ride the wave of popularity, so the duo rushed and gave it to him. Their counterculture folksy album brought the great success in the mid-60s, and in the latter, latter half of the decade, the popularity started to get to them. Amid tension, they released their final studio album, 1970s, appropriately titled Bridge Over Troubled Waters, which went to number one in the U.S., Australia, Finland, France, Germany, Japan, the Netherlands, Norway, Sweden... And the UK. Okay, so we get it. Everywhere in Europe. Pretty much. And has reached a minimum of gold, a maximum of 10 platinum all over the world. Art wanted to take a two-year break. Simon wanted out for good. After the break, they only spoke a few times and reunited here and there throughout the years. In the 1980s, their respective solo careers really weren't doing so hot, so a promoter convinced them to do a free park or a free concert in Central Park to help bail out New York's shitty economy at the time. The live recording of the concert in Central Park released in 1982 and gave the duo a new life. They embarked on a world tour trying to put the past behind them, but it wasn't going to happen. They barely spoke, and after recording several vocal tracks for a new Simon and Garfunk album, Simon took all of his material on his own, and because it was personal to him, Art apparently wouldn't give up his weed and smoke habit, even though Simon asked him to, so they had more riffs, and including, well, they had more riffs, you know. Including at the 1990 induction to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame when Art thanked Simon saying, quote, the person who most enriched my life by putting those songs through me, to which Paul Simon replied, Arthur and I agree about almost nothing, but it's true. I've enriched his life quite a bit. Ouch. Yeah, what a prick. So no wonder after that, performing, they performed three songs and walked away back to back. To make matters worse, when Simon staged a concert in Central Park in 1991, 
Art offered to lend a hand as another reunion. Simon basically said, nah, solo concert, yo. And <laughs> the sour grapes and ice thawed just a little bit in the mid-90s at Simon's solo introduction in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He mentioned, I regret the ending of our relationship. I hope someday, before we die, we will make peace with each other. There was a dramatic pause, and he wrote, no rush. Ouch. <laughs> Still had to be a dick about it. Yeah. So they seemingly reconciled and toured again for the Old Friends Tour from 2003 to 2005, and again from 2007 to 2010. While Art is on board for a possible reunion, it doesn't appear Simon will go along in the future, telling NPR in 2016, you know, the music essentially stopped in 1970. And, you know, I mean, quite honestly, we don't get along, so it's not like it's fun. But when it's not fun, you know, and you're going to be in a tense situation, well, I have a lot of musical areas I'd like to play on, so that'll never happen again. Pretty final. I still say he sounds like a dick that just kind of keeps leading Art on, and Art is like the clueless puppy that just keeps following him because he's his only friend. She's, she's the He's the hook girl. Yeah, kind of, yeah. So, 1970s Cecilia is the single off their last studio album, Bridge Over Trouble Water. It's an infectious song that sounds amateur, but is really vocally entertaining to listen to. Let's go ahead and take a quick check on Cecilia. The song literally talks about it talks about a guy who gets done doing his business in his bedroom. He gets up to clean up and wash his face, and when he comes back, someone else is in bed with her. In his bed. The fuck, dude? You know, now, it's said that it's not to be taken literally, and it's really about a breakup and getting back together. It could also be about the fact that St. Cecilia was the patron saint of musicians, so if she didn't love him, he'd have writer's block. That actually kind of makes sense. Now, who knows? Now, gotta say, if it was literal, though, did this person just sit and sneak in the window or maybe creep in while they were getting busy? Maybe they were watching from the closet. That could very well be. This was a drinking song for college for me. We, okay. we would put this on in the background. I enjoy this song. I'm not a huge fan of all of Simon's stuff because I find it whiny. This is a solid seven for me. Okay. So who doesn't like Cecilia? It's a fun song about a guy begging for his girl to come home. It's a song about loss and possible recovery, but if you don't know what the song is about, the music is very happy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I also gave it a seven. Is that three sevens we've combined? I think so, something like that. Jackpot! Hey, it gets even better. Ready for the fourth seventh? Because I'm going to start the seventh song. Ah, look at you. So, When Doves Cry by Quindon Tarver from Boz Lerman's Romeo and Juliet. Quindon Tarver is an American singer. He is best known for his cover of Prince's When Doves Cry and Rosilla's Everybody's Free for the 1996 film William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. Tarver's cover of Everybody's Free to Feel Good, as well as his rendition of Prince's When Doves Cry, were included on Romeo and Juliet's soundtrack, which earned double platinum status for selling 2 million copies. He also appeared in the film as a choir boy. Under the same management as then-teen sensation Immature slash IMX, Smooth, Girl, and B2K, Tarver began to appeal to a large market of teens and subsequently toured the world with the likes of Immature, Brandy, and Monica. Tarver has contributed to the soundtracks of such feature films as Kazam. You want to brag about that? You really want that on your resume? And Down in the Delta, and has made appearances on Good Morning America, Soul Train, and American Idol Seasons 2 and 7, in which he finished in the top 50. 
Okay, so he didn't even make the cut. He has worked with artists Faith Evans, Playa, Tiny of Escape, and VH1's Family Hustle, and Nokia of R&B group Drew Hill. He has worked with many producers, most notably Troy Taylor. Let's listen to this cover of When Doves Cry. Now, according to the Purple Rain DVD, Prince was asked by the director to write a song to match the theme of a particular segment of the film, one which involved intermingling parental difficulties and a love affair. There's your song. The next morning, Prince had reportedly composed two songs, one of which was When Doves Cry. According to Pierre Nielsen, Prince's biographer, the song was inspired by his relationship with Vanity Six member Susan Muncy. Prince wrote and composed... When Doves Cry after all the other tracks were completed on Purple Rain. In addition to vocals, he played all instruments on the track. The song's texture is remarkably stark. There is no bass line, which is very unusual for an 80s dance song. Prince said that there, were, there originally was a bass line, but after a conversation with singer Jill Jones, he decided that the song was too conventional with it intact. So the song itself is a cover. The kid has got pipes. I'll give him that. I remember watching this version of Romeo and Juliet, and this song presented the way it was in the movie fits perfectly. Now, I'm going to remove it from the movie. And in so doing that, I am not a big fan of it. I'm a musical purist when it comes to certain artists, and Prince is one of those artists. As it stands alone, I give it a hard pass. As a part of the movie, it was okay. I give it a 3 of 10. Alright, so... When I first heard the song and I looked it up and said that it was a he that was singing, I was like, really? Because, seriously, <laughs> yeah. it does not sound like a guy singing. The song isn't a terrible cover, but I like the original better, and you know how much I appreciate Prince. Not as much as you do. I'm not as much of a Purple fan as you are. The song has a good beat. The guy's got a decent voice, but it almost sounds like he's trying a little bit too hard. I'm absolutely not a fan of where it came from. Not talking about the Purple one, but rather about the movie. Boz Lorben's interpretation of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, I fucking hate that movie. Oh, see, I really I cannot enjoy stand it. that movie. I think it's terrible. Does your wife like the song, or does she like the movie as well? She likes the song, as far as I know, yes. Okay. And I just, it's hard to separate the two. It really is. I'm still giving it a five due to the fact that the guy's got a good voice. And I don't want to, I don't really care to hear more of it, but at the same time, I'll give credit where credit's due. Yeah, absolutely. The kid has got pipes. I mean... I will give them that, but I just I couldn't. All right, so my next one here is going to actually be an instrumental. Okay. And we're going to be talking about Claire de Lune by the Philadelphia Orchestra from Ocean's Eleven, which was composed by Claude Debussy. Or Debussy? Probably Debussy. Probably Debussy. So, Achille Claude Debussy was a French composer born in 1862 in St. Germain and Lai. Parents were not musical. Dad owned a china shop. Mom was a seamstress. So, and he started music by, piano, by taking piano lessons at age 7. He proved talented enough that he joined the Paris Conservatory at age 10, where he spent 11 years studying composition, history, harmony, piano, organ, and solfa, which is pitch and sight reading. He was an accomplished pianist and could sight read like few others and was oft compared to Bizet. Okay. Rather than go professional, he did different works such as accompanying Tchaikovsky's patroness, 
Oh, gosh. Uh, Nedza von Meck and her family in summers to play and give music lessons to her kids. In 1884, he won the Prix de Rome Art Scholarship and with with his composition L'Enfant Prodigé and attended Académie des Beaux-Arts, where he continued to study despite feeling the place was unacceptable. He complained to a close friend that the food sucked, the, com- the company was boorish, and the atmosphere was artistically stifling. So he loved school. Oh, yeah. So this left him unable to compose and depressed, but his admiration of Franz Liszt helped him continue on the way. Through his travels, he was exposed to and appreciated Wagner's opera style. In and around the late 1880s, he continued to compose up to his last orchestral work, the Ballet Joe, from 1912. By this time, he was already diagnosed with cancer, and in 1918, he passed away from it. Claire de Lune was composed around 1890 and is the third and most arguably famous movement of the piano suite, Suite Bergemesque. The title, which means moonlight in the French per dictionary.com, comes from a poem of the same name by French poet Paul-Marie Verlaine. Let's go ahead and take a quick listen to Claire de Lune. Now, this piece has been used on many TV shows, commercials, and movies, and some examples being an ad for British Airways and in the movies and in the movies such as Disney's Fantasia, Man on Fire, and Casino Royale. It even made its way on a video game showing up in Gran Turismo 4, which is a racing game, so I guess I'm not sure how this is really a racing theme. The version we heard here is from the 2001 remake of the 1960 Rat Pack film, Ocean's Eleven. It's a beautiful flowing piece that's incredibly relaxing. I've heard this piece done by other other orchestras, including John Williams with the Boston Pops, and it was beautiful then. I have to say this is one of the sweetest sounding versions. I will definitely listen to more of Debussy's material. This is an easy eight for me. Okay. I really enjoy the series of Ocean's movies. And this instrumental, I really enjoyed it. It's not too slow. It's not too fast. It jumps along and doesn't plod. I just thought it was really good. I give it a six. All right. And what do you got next? All right, I got Diamond Dogs by Beck from Baz Luhrmann's Moulin Rouge. So, Beck Hansen, known professionally as Beck, is an American singer, songwriter, rapper, record producer, and multi-instrumentalist. He is most known for his musical composition, as well as a palette of sonic genres. He rose to fame in the early 1990s with his sonically experimental and lo-fi style, and became known for creating musical collages of wide genre styles. Now, this is the Beck who did Loser, correct? Mm-hmm. Okay, same guy. Yes. Okay. Today he is musically today he musically encompasses folk, funk, soul, hip hop, electronic, alternative rock, country, and psychedelia. He has released thirteen studio albums, three of which were independently released, as well as several non album singles and a book of sheet music. With a pop art co- collage of musical styles, oblique and ironic lyrics and postmodern arrangements incorporating samples, drum machines, live instrumentation, and sound effects, Beck has been hailed by critics and the public throughout his musical career as being among the most idiosyncratically 
creative musicians of the 1990s and 2000s alternative rock. Two of Beck's most popular and acclaimed recordings are Odele and Sea Change, both of which were ranked on Rolling Stone's list of the 500 greatest albums of all time. The four-time platinum artist has collaborated with several artists and has made several contributions to soundtracks. Beck is married to actress Marissa Ribisi and an active Scientologist. Let's listen to these dogs made of diamonds. Oh baby, come on. So Diamond Dogs is a 1974 single by David Bowie, the title track of the album of the same name. The lyric introduces the listener to Bowie's latest persona and his environment. Halloween Jack dwells on the top of an abandoned skyscraper in a post-apocalyptic Manhattan. The guitar sound is heavily influenced by the Rolling Stones and signaled Bowie moving away from glam rock and closer to proto-punk, Stooges-influenced sound. The track was considered by many commentators to be an unconventional single, and it only reached number 21 in the United Kingdom. According to NME critics Roy Kennard, Charles Shar Murray, as a potential hit single, the track title from Diamond Dogs was something of a non-event. Too long, too bleak in vision, too tough to dance to, you know the drill. The song itself, and Nicole, I apologize, is garbage. It is absolutely horrid. I don't like most of what I've ever heard from Beck, and sadly, this doesn't change that opinion. I gave this a one. Ouch. Now, okay, I'm going to put this out here. I really don't care much for Beck. I've never really cared for him. I don't either. It's just the fact that, I don't know, everybody loved Loser and his, like, alternative style, and it just didn't do it for me. I wouldn't put him in the hatred, you know, want to burn him with fire. Right. But at the same time... As a musician, I'm not a huge fan. However, he's done a lot of work behind the camera, per se, and his producing and stuff is actually pretty good. In fact, um, I found a few things like the Scott Pilgrim versus the World soundtrack, for example, was actually done by Beck as well, which made me kind of second-guess this just a little bit. That being said, the song has a likable, funky style, but I didn't care for this song. To be fair, it's a Bowie cover, and I didn't care for the Bowie version either. So... I think there are better so- better songs that carry the soundtrack. I give it a five. Okay. Now, I'm going to be following this up with another song off of that soundtrack. Okay. And that's Complente de la Butte. Butte? Butte? Or Butte? Not sure. It's French, some shit? It's Butte. Whatever. Butte. Just like the city. By Rufus Wainwright. Now, Rufus McGarrell Wainwright is an American-Canadian songwriter and singer and composer, born in 1973. A. He was born of musicians in New York, but due to a divorce, went to live with his mom in Montreal for most of his formative years. He started playing piano at age six. I feel like such a goddamn underachiever, seriously. <laughs> I'm 42 and I don't play the piano. <laughs> and toured with the, McGarrel, with the McGarrel sisters and family, which is a group composed of himself, his sister Martha, his mother Kate, and Aunt Anna, starting around age 13. He started becoming interested in operas as well and gaining an appreciation of Edith, uh, Edith Piaf, Al Jolson, and Judy Garland in his teens as well, which all had his influence on his later works. He cut a few demos that impressed his dad, Loudon, who passed them along to his friend, Van Dyke Parks, who forwarded them to Lenny Warrenker at DreamWorks. 
DreamWorks, uh, Warren Kerr recalled, when I was about to listen to his tape, I remember clearly thinking, gee, if he has his mom's musical musicality and smarts and his dad's smarts and voice, this would be nice. Then I put it on and said, oh my god, this is stunning. Rufus moved to New York in 1996 and began working on his studio material. His first album, 98's Rufus Wainwright, self-titled, peaked at 171 in the UK and went silver there. His next album, 2001's Poses, was critically loved, but sales, eh, not so much. 117 on the top 200 in the US, 132 in the top 200 in the UK. It was around that time where he went temporarily blind from meth addiction. Kinda okay. Kind of kind of hurts the you know hurts the job just a little bit. Yeah. So he focused on cleaning up and on his recording and family. He had a daughter through a parenting re- partnership with childhood friend Lorca Cohen, the daughter of Leonard Cohen. Okay. And a couple of years later, he got married to partner Jorn Weisberg. He continued to record and release, and most recent album being 2016's Take All My Love's Nine Shakespeare Sonnets. Rufus Wainwright has released nine studio albums spawning nine singles and contributed 78 other pieces, mostly to soundtracks like Big Daddy, Meet the Robinson, which is a great animated movie. Yes. Um, the Aviator, to name a couple. Now, Complainte de la Butte. 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 Why am I having a problem with that? I don't know. The name, to, to someone who doesn't speak a lick of French, no shit, looks like Complaint of the Butt. It looks like somebody bitching about their ass. But that's not it. The actual translation is Lament of the Butte, which is a grieving morning the Butte, and was written by Georges Van Paris and Jean Renoir and performed by Rufus Wainwright, included on the soundtrack for 2001's musical romantic comedy Moulin Rouge, as well as performed on performed live on Wainwright's 2007 album Milwaukee at Last. Let's go ahead and take a quick listen to The Complaint of the Butt. The you can laugh all you want i'm still making you laugh out of it so now the song, that's your goal i want a little validation damn it god <laughs> you suck the song is written and sung mostly in french with a little bit in english in the chorus it's really an ode to the object of his affection as well as that to which Moulin Rouge and its famous windmill, from the overlooking point of view. I really never heard of the guy until hearing him sing a version of Leonard Cohen's song Hallelujah in the 2001 movie Shrek, which actually came out about two weeks prior to Moulin Rouge in 2001. So he was busy. Yeah. First things first, I think... Well, you got to pay for that new eyes you got after you went meth blind. Yeah, exactly. First thing, i got to say, he's got a really good voice. I think he's got an amazing voice. That being said, I'm really not a huge fan of songs that I don't understand the words of. That includes foreign language. That also includes screaming into them with like shitty metal, uh, like Slayer and things like that. It's no. Now, the song itself sounds pretty, but it's still kind of a meh for me. I would like to hear more of him, though, because I'd like to appreciate his soothing voice. But this one just gets a six. Fair enough. Now. Complain about your butt. No, no, no. I, what I got here is, I said, you and Nicole have a thing about soundtrack music. I've noticed this. Not that it's a bad thing, just an observation. I mean, she's got four songs out of all these that are from movies. Maybe five. But anyway, I really like to listen to the French language. Whether it's being spoken, whether it's being sung, it's just beautiful. I took four years of French in high school. I'm sorry. I don't remember how to speak any of it. But every once in a while, even listening to this, I would pick up a word. You know, it's kind of like 
you, you learn it and you're like, oh, oh yeah, that word kind of thing. You kind of go like ha- a half sentence or something. Yeah, exactly. So they call it a romance language for a reason. I really enjoy this piece of music and I want to listen to more. I gave it a seven. Okay. So. Yeah, it's. I mean, like I said, I think the guy's got a really good voice. He's got a very pretty voice. I think, um, and Hallelujah was a very, very good song in Shrek. I think some of his other stuff would be good. This one just doesn't do it for me. Okay, fair enough. So up next, I am going to do Dare by Gorillaz. So Gorillaz is an English virtual band created in 1998 by musician Damon Albom and artist Jamie Hewlett. The band consists of four animated members. 2D, which is lead vocals and keyboards. Murdoch Nichols, bass guitar. Noodle, guitar and keyboards, and Russell Hobbs, drums and percussion. These members are fictional and are not personas of any quote-unquote real-life musicians involved in the project. Their fictional universe is explored through the band's music videos, as well as a number of other short cartoons. In reality, Albarn is the only permanent musical contributor, and the music is often a collaboration between various musicians. With Gorillaz, Albarn uh, departed from the distinct Brit pop of his established band Blur and explored influences from a wide range of sources including hip-hop, electronic music, and world music through an eccentrically post-mortem approach. Or, I'm sorry, eccentrically post-modern approach. Post-mortem is something completely different. Yeah, that would make the conversation just a little bit disgusting. Yeah, the band's 2001 debut album Gorillaz sold over 7 million copies. It was nominated for the Mercury Prize in 2001, but the nomination was later withdrawn at the band's request. Their second studio album, Demon Days 2005, went six times platinum in the UK and double platinum in the US. Demon Days has sold over 8 million copies worldwide. The band has won other awards, including one Grammy Award, two MTV Music Video Awards, an NME Award, and three MTV Europe Music Awards. I dare you to listen to this. So Dare is a song by British virtual band Gorillaz, taken as the second single from their second studio album, Demon Days. The track is sung by Rosie Wilson, known as Roses Gabor, with backing vocals from Damon Albarn, and features vocals by Happy Monday's frontman Sean Ryder. It peaked at number one in the UK singles charts in September 2005, becoming the band's only UK number one. Now the song itself is pretty funky and I really kind of like it. I've had a friend who's been trying to get me to listen to Gorillaz for years, and I never have. Really? Yeah. Well, Tim, I will be checking out more of this. I give this a solid 8 of 10. All right. Now, the band's interesting. I really never got into them back in the day because, I don't know, just the animated thing just sounded stupid. Plus, everybody loved that song, Clint Eastwood, and Clint Eastwood was not mentioned in the lyrics at all, and I'm just like, this is stupid. I couldn't get behind them. Now, this one here, it's really just gibberish put to techno. It's, it's really all it is. I mean, it's got, it doesn't mean anything, and the reason it's called there, a dare is because of their version of saying the word there, but with their accent. So, I don't know. It's not bad. I want to check more of them. I give it a seven. Okay. So, I suppose I got the next one here, and we're going to go with a little Michael Jackson. 
Michael Jack Michael Joseph Jackson was an American singer, songwriter, and dancer born in Gary, Indiana. It pains me to say was. It really does. Yeah. Now, he was the eighth of ten kids. The family was musical from the beginning. Dad played guitar with a local R&B band. Mom played clarinet and piano. He also played the chops, like up alongside their heads. Yeah, exactly. And joined up with Jackie, Tito, Jermaine, and Marlon to form the Jackson Five in 1964. Dad Joe was strict and often whooped up on him, physically and verbally, if they had a bad rehearsal. And it seemed that Michael took the brunt of it, with Joe often ragging on him about his fat nose. Which, maybe that's why he got it redone so many times. Maybe. The group toured and recorded and renamed as the Jacksons when Randy and sisters hooked up with them, LaToya and Janet. And Michael, who wrote most of the material for the band, was also releasing solo albums. It was when his fifth solo album, 1979's Off the Wall, was released that he firmly was a solo artist. He continued to record and occasionally act, winning Grammy Awards along the way, but it wasn't until 1982 when he exploded into the world with Thriller, the best-selling album of all time. Like, period. Yep, yep. And I, unfortunately, do not own that album. I have it around here somewhere. Now, do you have the one with the, the tiger on it or just the original one? Just the original one. I That's what I'm surprised that I don't have in my collection. I've got the number ones, but I don't actually have Thriller because it's, it's an amazing album. Yeah. Now, he was a super public figure that pretty much did it everything. He's kind of like Forrest Gump. He met the president, collaborated with other artists, did humanity work, you name it. He also helped co-write USA for Af- Africa's anthem, We Are the World, with Lionel Richie. Then, in the mid-80s, it started to take a turn. There were a lot of rumors, some of which turned out to be true, such as bleaching his skin because he was turning whiter as time passed. Apparently he did bleach it, but was also diagnosed with vitiligo, which makes pigment go away. So He bleached it to uh, even it out. Probably, yes. Sleeping in a hyperbaric chamber, which is unproven. He bought bubbles. People thought he was losing his mind. And he put a bid in for the elephant man's bones. He never denied that he did. Wait, what, what is wrong with owning a... I don't want an ape or a monkey in a heartbeat. <laughs> so, now, through it all, the molestations, lawsuits, marriages, having children, he continued to tour and release Grammy-winning albums. He passed away in 2009, and posthumously his sales, as expected, went through the roof. He released 10 studio albums, all but three going gold or better, and spawned 59 singles. He's won 13 Grammy Awards and holds 396 Guinness World Records including most successful pop family, best-selling album of all time, and largest TV audience for a music video premiere. Black and White had 500 million people watching it. Yeah, that's crazy. This is for The Way You Make Me Feel, which, again, I don't even think I named the title of the song before now. So, The Way You Make Me Feel. All right, let's go ahead and see how you make me feel. I'm sure it's not the way that he does. So this is a single off of 1987's Bad, which is another really good album. It's kind of a fusion of pop and R&B that lightens up the feelings regarding the other songs off of the album. Now, as a whole, the King of Pop really couldn't do a whole lot of wrong things in his musical career. This song got a lot of radio play. Anybody who listens to it can appreciate it. It's not my favorite Michael Jackson song by, by any means. It's still a good song, though. I'm giving it a solid 7. Okay. Now... 
I'm going to start with this. I like Michael Jackson. I like his music. I like the song. Again, not my favorite of his, but it's still up there. So, The Way You Make Me Feel, it was a short film and was designed to show off a more flirtatious and romantic yet still edgy side of Michael Jackson. When I was writing that, I was laughing to myself. Yeah, and now that edgy I read it, Michael Jackson. And now that I read it out loud, I laughed to myself again. But anyway, uh, the Joel Patika directed short film was nominated for an MTV Music Video Award for Best Choreography in 1988. Now, I'm going to throw you a trivia question because I just happened to be watching a, a thing on YouTube about famous people's last words. Do you know what Michael Jackson's last word was? Shit. No. <laughs> Even though there was somebody on that list that that was basically their last word. They were like, God damn. No, I really have no idea. It was milk. And milk was the word he used for whatever the... I forget what drug he died from. Mm, okay. But when he wanted a dose, that's what he would ask for is milk. A code word. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's disturbing yet interesting. Yeah. Oh, I gave it an eight. Okay. All right. So, so my last, last one, one is Dog Days Are Over by Florence and the Machine. So Florence and the Machine are an English indie rock band that formed in London in 2007, consisting of vocalist Florence Welsh, keyboardist Isabella Summers, and a collaboration of other artists. The band's music received praise across the media, especially from the BBC, which played a large part in their rise to prominence by promoting Florence and the Machine as part of BBC Introducing. At the 2009 Brit Awards, they received the Brit Awards Critics' Choice Award. The band's music is renowned for its dramatic and eccentric production and also Welch's powerful vocal performances. The band's debut album, Lungs, was released on 6 July 2009 and held the number two position for the first five weeks on the UK Albums Chart. On 17 January 2010, their album reached the top position after being on the chart for 28 consecutive weeks. As of October 2010, the album has been in the top 40 in the United Kingdom for 65 consecutive weeks. Jesus. That's a long time. Mm -hmm. Making it one of the best-selling albums of 2009 and 2010. The group's second studio album, Ceremonials, released in October 2011, entered the charts at number one in the UK and number six in the US. The band's third album, How Big, How Blue, How Beautiful, was released on June 2, 2015. It topped the UK charts and debuted at number one on the US Billboard 200, their first to do so. The album reached number one in a total of eight countries and the top ten of 20 countries. Also in 2015, the band was the headlining act at Glastonbury Festival, making Florence Welch the first British female headliner for this century. Florence and the Machine's sound has been described as a combination of various genres, including rock and soul. Lungs won the Brit Award for Best British Album in 2010. Florence and the Machine have been nominated for seven Grammy Awards, including Best New Artist and Best Pop Vocal Album. Additionally, the band performed at the 2010 MTV Video Music Awards and the 2010 Nobel Peace Prize Concert. Let's listen to The Dog Days. The Dog Days are over a concert for the Nobel Prize? I guess. I suppose. Whatever. So, Dog Days Are Over is a song by English indie rock band Florence and the Machine from their debut album Lungs. It was originally scheduled for release on 24 November 2008 
through Moshi Moshi Records in the UK as the album's second single, but was later pushed for a release on 1 December 2008. A day later, on December 2, 2008, the single was released in download and 7-inch vinyl format through I Am Sound Records in the US. The B-side to the single is the cover of You Got the Love by The Source, featuring Candy Stanton, which later was confirmed as a track on their debut album and the band's fifth single. The single reached the top 30 in Canada, Ireland, and the United Kingdom and the United States. A demo version of Dog Days Are Over is featured on disc 2 of the deluxe edition of Lungs. A 6 minute, 40 second long, optimal remix of Dog Days Are Over has been made available as well. An acoustic version of the song was performed on performed live on BBC's Radio One Big Weekend. The track has been performed at a great number of high-profile festivals through 2008 and 2009, including the Reading and Leeds festivals. The band also performed the song on Mercury Prize 2009 awards show and BBC Introducing. Now, I love Florence and the Machine. A few years ago, Mel got me into the band, and I really like the feel of their music. It's pop, but it's also kind of dark and... I kind of like that. Now, I own their first two albums. I own Lungs and Ceremonials. It's a great band. It's not something that I'll pop in whenever. It's like I got to be in the right mood for it kind of thing. But I do really enjoy it. I gave it a 7 of 10. I just learned something about you. What's that? I would have never pegged you for that. Ever. (laughs) Now, I have a softer side. She's got... (laughs) Now I'm thinking of Sears. (laughs) She's got a decent voice, and the song has a good folksy sound, but then adds a beat to it. She's, to me, kind of sounds like a modern Janis Joplin almost. To a degree. (sighs) Now, it's a shame that the song got played to death on the radio, and then they just kind of disappeared. You know, they played the hell out of it, and it's like, hey, we made our money, and now we're gone. Now, I'm not going to rate on overplaying, though. I don't think I'd ever seek it out, but I might leave it on the radio station if it's on there, because it's not a terrible song. I can't give it a 7 because I want to look for more of it, but I can't go any higher than a 6, an upper 6. Okay. I'm sorry, what was yours again? 7. All right. So, I got my last one here. All right, top us off. All right, we're going to go with a little Chelsea Dagger by the Fratellis. Now, the Fratellis are a Scottish rock band that formed in 2005 and are composed of John Lawler, Barry Wallace, and Gordon McRory. Got to have that one Scottish name in there, don't they? Always. I mean, they're a Scottish band. Well, I know, but you got all, like, the other ones, and then you got, like, you have to have a Mick in there. So they went the route of the Ramones and the Traveling Wilburys and all took Fratelli as their stage name. John Fratelli, Barry Fratelli, and then the third guy decided to do Mince Fratelli because I guess Gordon Fratelli sounded stupid. Whatever. I love that name, actually. Here's something else you'll learn about me. I love the name Gordon. I do. I don't know why. There I would some, never there, name a kid Gordon. But there are some awesome people named Gordon. Sting. Gordon Ramsay. I okay. would I would love to have a conversation with that guy. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'd want to punch his teeth down his throat by the end of it, but yeah. And for the fact that he like does Iron Man things all the time, I think he would whoop your ass. Yeah, probably. <laughs> so I didn't say I was going to win. I just said I'd want to <laughs> put his teeth down his throat. So they took their name from the bad guys from the 1985 Richard Donner adventure film, The Goonies, which I kind of guessed, but it was kind of nice to see that that was the case. They released their first professional work, 2006's EP, The Fratellis, where it made little noise. Later that year, they put out their first full studio album, Costello Music, where it didn't do a self-title. Wow. It's called Costello Music, where it hit number one in Scotland, two in the UK, and 48 in the US, becoming three times platinum in the UK. They toured with Kasabian before touring solo in 2007. One of their dates produced a concert DVD. Kasabian? Mm -hmm. The same as in Vlad the Impaler? Sure. So... (laughs) 
<laughs> they continued to tour before taking a hiatus in 2009 for members to do solo or side projects and reconvene to tour or, and reconvene in 2012, playing their first show as a fundraiser for um, the Brown Memorial Fund, because I don't know how to say the first name. Since then, they've continued to tour worldwide, focusing more on European nations and recording. They're still active today, with their most recent album release being in 2015. They've released four studio albums, all of which have peaked the top 30 in the UK and spawned nine singles. Chelsea Dagger is the second single off their debut album, Costello Music, which came out in 2006. The title of the song was inspired by songwriter John Fratelli's real-life wife. She does a burlesque show, and that was her stage name, which is a play on a certain pop princess, Britney Spears. So instead of Britney Spears, it's Chelsea Dagger. Okay. Now, let's go ahead and take a quick listen to Chelsea Dagger. Someone said she was asking out to me, but I know your best is a blagger. I said, tell me your name, is it sweet? She said, my boy is Dagger. Oh, yeah. I was good, she was hard, stealing everything she got. I was born, she was over the worst of it. Give me gear, thank you, dear. Now, the song is... I you- just got it. Britney Spears, Dagger Spears. I, I hope you're joking. No, no, I'm not. It didn't. Oh. It didn't register. <laughs> oh wow, that's that just made my night. So um, they use the song a ton in sporting events and mostly soccer, obviously. And most recently, the Blackhawks used it when they made a run at the Stanley Cup in 2010, 2013, and 2015. Apparently, it's so successful as a goal song that college colleges are using it as well. Okay. Um, the song is a kind of just a rocking song that I find just fun to listen to. The opening sounded a little bit like the beginning theme for the show The League that was on the Fox, that was on FX, you know, okay. the fantasy football show. And that's kind of what drew me in initially. I was intrigued. I would really like to actually hear more from these guys because they got to be better than that other Scottish band that we've listened to recently. Thank you, fucker, for listening to Proclaimers. I gave it a seven. I had heard the song before, though I didn't recognize it by the name. It's an alright pop song. I enjoy it. Not overly familiar with the Fratellis. I did watch the video, and I think this is a kind of a thing that happens in a lot of bands, but they're all dressed to the nines for the video, except the drummer. He's in a freaking wife beater. <laughs> yeah, it's like that. You see that in a lot of them, and I get it because you can't move around to, you know, the drum, mm-hmm. but it's just, it's so silly. Yeah, but Phil Collins did that, though. Phil Collins was always dressed in suit and tie when he was drumming. That's true. That's true. It's not that it can't be done. I just think it's easier to... Easier movement. Yeah, but I don't know. I I don't know. I find that funny, but I enjoy the song. It's all right. Uh, I give it a five. Okay. So we've got our 14 songs done. Yes. And a quick recap. We actually have one, two, three songs that we agreed on. Like exactly the exactly same. Exactly the same. Most of the songs are within one or two. There's only one song where we really varied, and that was on Diamond Dogs. That was a difference of four. Okay, yep. So other than that, I mean, we agreed 100% on Began, on Boogie Shoes, and on Cecilia by Simon and Garfunkel. And they all happened to be sevens. Yeah, and then after sevens, we did our seventh song, which was just comical the way it worked. Yeah, so why don't you uh, pull out that trivia clip and watch me get it wrong? Okay, so the trivia question was, which music duo composed the theme song for the 2010 Fox television show, Bones? I'm guessing here I have no clue. Hollow Notes. Crystal Method. Never heard of them. Uh, well, okay, I'm sure you've probably heard their stuff. You probably just didn't know what they were called. Could be. But yeah, the Crystal Method, um, and I did not know that until I got that as a ringer because that's actually my phone ringtone because... I know she likes it. So. Okay. And that way, if the phone goes off, I'll know exactly who it is. 
Fair enough. So that actually puts you under the 500. Now. I know. I've had a I've had a string of bad. It's 14 and 15 now. But I'm guessing. Well, I'm not guessing. I know that you're going to bounce back on this one. Well, I just I just know it. It is what it is. Okay, listen up, everybody. Turn up your volumes. Announcement. If you want to drop us a line, let us know what you think about this episode or any other episode. You can do that easily. We've got. Tons of ways for you to do that. Let's start with uh, with email. You can find us at uh, musicchallengepodcast at gmail.com or at eclecticmediaproject at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook as well at POI Network or at Musically Challenged Podcast. Either way, drop us a line. We'll get back to you as soon as we can. There's one other way too, isn't there, Ruth? There is, and that's we're on Twitter. And we are at MCPodcast17. If you want to send us a playlist, 14 songs, 14 artists. If you want to have a theme, great. If not, ain't going to break our heart. We'll go ahead and tell you what we think of your songs, regardless if we love them or hate them. We ain't going to be nice, but we'll have, an, we'll have a fun time, and you'll get your name on there. Yeah, so with that, we want to thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next week. You have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at POI Game Studio.